Thank you, Michael. And this is uh, where I would typically have you turn uh, with me to our text, but I'm actually not going to have you do that this morning because we're um, going to present the text in a little bit different way today. Uh, We are in a sermon series looking at the Psalms of Ascent, and we are up to uh, the second one of those Psalms, Psalm 121. And instead of uh, opening in your Bibles, which you you can if you want, uh, but we're going to actually play a video that's going to have the words of this text, and I'm going to kind of lead us uh, through the text using that instead. So you can uh, open, if you want, to the Psalm. You can watch it on the screen. You can also simply close your eyes and, and hear the Word of God to you that way as well. So Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, the God of Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your going and your coming, both now and forevermore. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, at one point in the movie The Princess Bride, uh, the heroes of the story, Princess Buttercup and her long-lost love, Wesley, uh, find themselves in the dark and foreboding labyrinth of the dreaded fire swamp. Uh, It's a gloomy and dangerous place. It's impossible to navigate, and it's known for making sure that those who try to travel through it are never seen or heard from again. And among its dangers are the famous three terrors of the fire swamp. Um, There are flame spurts, which are sort of small geysers of fire that randomly erupt up from the ground. Lightning sand, which is an extremely quick form of quicksand. And then, of course, R-O-U-S's, which, as everyone knows, are rodents of unusual size. Um, So after encountering the first two terrors, Buttercup begins to despair of ever making it out of the fire swamp alive. We'll never succeed, she says. We may as well just die here. No, no, Wesley responds. We've already succeeded. I mean, what are the three terrors of the fire swamp? One, the flame spurt. There's a popping sound before each of those, so we can avoid that. Two, the lightning sand, which you were clever enough to discover what that looks like, so in the future we can avoid that too. But Wesley, what about the R-O-U-S's, Buttercup worries? Rodents of unusual size, he responds. I don't think they exist. He's then, of course, immediately attacked by one. Um, He manages to make quick work of it, though, uh, throwing it on an erupting fire spurt and escaping with Buttercup, and against all odds, they're able to make it out of the fire swamp. Those three terrors that had defeated all the previous travelers who had entered the swamp were no match for them. 
Well, in the same way, the psalmist actually details three terrors, three difficulties, three dangers that threaten those uh, who choose to travel to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple there. As with Buttercup and Wesley in the fire swamp, though, it turns out that those terrors are no match for these Jewish pilgrims on their way to worship. Instead, they're able to make it past these three dangers, the psalmist lists, without a problem. The only difference is that this time, unlike with Wesley and Buttercup, it's not because of their own strength or cleverness that they make it through, but instead because of the Lord. Just to orient ourselves this morning, uh, like I said, we are making our way through the Psalms of Ascent in this series. Uh, This is just the second of them, and there's 15 in all, Psalms 120 through 134. And together, these Psalms comprise the, the list of songs that the Jewish pilgrims would have sung on their way to worship God at the temple in Jerusalem for the three major Jewish festivals that they were expected to go to Jerusalem for. Uh, Those festivals included the Feast of Passover in the spring, the Feast of Pentecost in early summer, and the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. And on their way, as they flocked the roads heading into the city of Jerusalem, the Jewish people would have sung these songs as preparation. Preparation for their time in the holy city, preparation for their time together with each other, and also preparation for their time together with God. As we said a few weeks ago when we started this series, these psalms were formative. They were formative for the heart of the disciple, for the heart of the pilgrim, for the heart of those who claim to be in relationship with God. And they prepared them, as his people, to come into his presence, reminding them of everything they needed to keep in mind as they came to worship him. One of those things, one of those things that these psalms reminded those pilgrims of, and it's specifically the one that this one, Psalm 121, reminded them of, were the stumbling blocks, though, that they might face on their way to go and worship God. Uh, Specifically, the psalmist details three potential obstacles to the Jewish pilgrims' worship of God here in this psalm. Uh, The first one is in verse 3. And he mentions the physical dangers that the pilgrims might endure, things like slipping or falling and injuring themselves on their way to Jerusalem. Then the first half of verse 6, he mentions another. This time it's physical exhaustion, possibly caused by overexposure to the sun or heat stroke. And then finally, in the second half of verse 6, the psalmist mentions the third challenge that these Jewish pilgrims might face which is mental exhaustion, something that the ancient writers referred to as moonstroke, but what we would know today as mental illness or lunacy. And doubtless, there are other dangers that lurked on the way to Jerusalem as well. Bandits, thieves, and 'er ne'er-do-wells, storms, disasters, and ironically named acts of God, misunderstood maps, wrong wrong turns, and long-term delays. The categories that the psalmist mentions here as obstacles for the worship of these pilgrims isn't meant to be exhaustive. Instead, the difficulties that he lists are simply meant to remind these Jewish pilgrims that whether due to physical limitation or exhaustion, mental stress and strain, or something else entirely, there are things that can stop or waylay or distract an otherwise eager worshiper of God and make it difficult for them to bring the sort of worship to God that they want to. And the same is true for us today. That's actually one of the privileges of pastoral work. Can we call it that, a privilege? Uh, Put simply, 
as a pastor, you're rarely in the dark about the reasons why people don't come to worship. And I think this is just kind of unique for the profession of the pastor, right? I don't think that this happens with people in other professions, right? If you're a mechanic, I don't think people uh, feel like they need to tell you why they don't go to your shop, right? If you're a salesperson, people don't go out of their way to find you and tell you why they don't buy your product. Um, But as a pastor, they do. Uh, I've had this often with, with different people, right? You meet people, they find out you're a pastor, and then they give you all the reasons for why they don't attend worship. Um, and so you don't have to wonder or guess why people don't go to church, because as a pastor, often people will simply tell you. And there are the superficial reasons that, if I'm being honest, take all my willpower not to roll my eyes at. It's just that worship is so early, and it's, it's my one day to sleep in, um, or uh, Sundays are my only day off, so I, I like to use them the way that I want. Maybe my least favorite one in recent years is, you know, all I really need from worship is the sermon, and I can get that in the podcast later on in the week. You see, there's a reoccurring theme in each one of those more superficial excuses for not worshiping. And that theme is this, me, myself, and I. All of those excuses for not worshiping are about us. They're about something that we want, what worship can do for us on our terms. And my friends, that's not worship. Unlike maybe everything else in our culture these days, worship is one of the few things that actually isn't about us. It's about God. It's about Christian transformation and sanctification. It's about discipleship and the root of that word, discipline. It is something that we discipline and condition ourselves to do. Not necessarily because we feel like it, because we always want to, but because we know that we need it. And because it forms us into people after God's own heart. Then there are the standard things, uh, issues that people have with worship. Things like music, tempo, liturgy, preaching style, or maybe most importantly, the pastor's attire. I'm going to give you all a hard time about that last one for a second. I think we know each other well enough at this point that you can probably take this with the humor that I intend, right? So don't get offended. But I'll be honest, for the first couple of months that I was here, I heard way more comments on Sunday mornings about the clothing I preached in than the content of my preaching, okay? And I thought that was quite funny, And I also thought it was ridiculous because most of the time it contradicted itself. Uh, You know, for instance, people would say things like like this to me. They'd say, oh, Brandon, I just love the suit. I love that you wear it every week. Or, you know what, Brandon, uh, maybe lose the tie and jacket, all right? Brandon, I can't believe you preached with your shirt untucked. You know what, Brandon, you're a little too formal sometimes. You could stand to untuck the shirt, okay? (laughs) Right? And, And sometimes I would get these sort of comments on the same Sunday from different people, okay? Uh, Now, as far as I know, I don't think that the things I've chosen to wear on a Sunday have have kept anyone away from worship, but I think you catch my drift, right? These are some of the standard things that we like to talk about when it comes to worship. Um, Our preferences. And we've all got them, and that's fine, to be honest, but just one word of advice. Keep in mind that just because you might not be happy with something on a given Sunday, you know, the songs might not have been your personal favorites, or the sermon didn't personally speak to you that week, or worst of all, your pastor didn't wear his clothes that you like the most, as weird as that sounds, right? It might just be 
that the Holy Spirit is actually using that service to soothe and speak to someone else. And I give you that advice because that's actually advice that somebody once gave me. Um, For years, I worshiped at Madison Square CRC uh, downtown when I was here for college and seminary. And I'd been there for a number of years at one point, and I, for whatever reason, just started to get sick of some of the songs uh, and and the the style of worship that they had there on certain Sundays. At the time when I was there, worship had about four different worship teams that all had very different worship styles, okay? So any given Sunday, you'd walk in and it would feel like a totally different church from the previous Sunday or from the next one. And uh, three of those four worship teams I really liked. But about once a month, there was a worship team that, for whatever reason, I just couldn't stand. In fact, it got to the point where when I would walk in there on a Sunday morning and see that team up front on the stage, I almost wanted to turn right back around and just go back home. Um, And so it got to the point, actually, where I was even considering changing churches because of that. But then one of my professors in in seminary said something in one of our classes that convicted me and kind of stopped me dead in my tracks. He said something, he was talking about worship, it was a class on worship, and he said something to the effect of, you know, it's not all bad when churches have different worship styles on different Sundays. He said it's a good thing because what that means is that different people will feel comfortable in that church on different weeks. Then he kind of spoke a little bit more directly to us as his students, and he said, you need to understand it's a good thing if you're not 100% comfortable in church every single Sunday. Because what it means is that someone else in that sanctuary is. And I'll suffice it to say, I've never forgotten that. I also stopped complaining, changed my bad attitude, and started trying to be a more willing worshiper when that team was up front. And you want to know the funniest part of the story? About a year later, Madison put out a need that they had uh, for for another person to advance the song slides on Sunday mornings. And I had a background in audiovisual, and so I contacted their head AV guy, and I said, hey, I can do that. I hadn't volunteered to that point in my time at Madison yet, so I said, "I I would be happy to do that. He said, great. The way we like to do this is we like to pair our audiovisual tech with just one worship team so that you can really get to know them and they can really get to know you. And that way you're always on the same page and you already know where this story is heading, don't you? We just happened to have one of our teams that lost their tech and guess which one it was. And so I spent the next two years as the, sli- the, the, the song slide changer person for that team. I think God just wanted to humble me. And then there are the obstacles to worship that we should care about, but often don't. These are the secret sins of our hearts. These are the things that keep us at a distance both from God and each other. These are the things that plague us, that tug at us, and that make our worship more a chore and a challenge than a means of grace. You know, it's, it's the gossip that we willingly participated with behind a coworker's back earlier in the week. It's the porn addiction that we've struggled with for years, but if we're honest with ourselves, really honest, we don't really want to give up. You know, it's, it's the fellow brother or sister in Christ here in our own church community that we have been angry with for years, but rather than go and talk to them about it, ask for forgiveness, work through it, We've allowed that to instead calcify into stubbornness and unrepentance, even though we sit here with each other in the same sanctuary week after week. I mean, Jesus had something to say about that last one, right? 
Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, this is what he says in verses 23 through 24. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, not you have something against them, they have something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. And yet how often do we do that? How often do we make sure that we are right with each other in the community of Christ before we come to worship. We'd rather just let it lie, right? Don't tell them, don't create a stir, don't cause a problem. Instead, just allow it to grow into a grudge under the surface in our heart until finally it comes to the point where it makes worship virtually impossible. Those are the sorts of things that should bother us when we come into this place, right? More than the songs that the director of worship selected on a given Sunday or whether or not the sermon happened to resonate with our personal preferences or anything else, right? Those are the obstacles that should concern us because they're the ones that ultimately impact our relationship with God and our ability to worship him. And then finally, there are the really serious ones. And these are the ones without a quick fix the ones that don't simply disappear, the ones that take time to heal, and even then, sometimes they don't. The deep pains, the personal laments, the gnawing aches that make us wonder if God will ever feel close and personal and good again. I knew somebody like this at a previous church that I served. He was a widower who had lost his wife much sooner than he expected to, uh, sometime in middle age. And because of that worship was hard for him. It just, it just was. There were some Sundays when he could bring himself to do it and he could leave the house and go to church and there were other Sundays when he couldn't. It's no one's fault, he'd tell me, except maybe God's. And I could tell he would feel ashamed. I shouldn't say things like that. It's just how I feel sometimes. All the happy families around him picture perfect in their Sunday best, and they'd go home to their Sunday dinners together, and he alone home to his table by himself. The joyful, upbeat songs that we'd sing when joy was the last thing that he felt most mornings, especially on Sundays. It all made worship difficult. It made church difficult. It made his relationship with God harder than he had ever expected it would be. And just as a side note, by the way, that's why hospitality is a non-negotiable aspect of the Christian community. That's why we have to be on the lookout for those here in the family of Christ who don't have another family to go to. If the only people who are ever at our table on Sunday afternoons are those that we're related to, then we are ignoring this family. If the only people who ever show up to our holiday parties are those who are there every single year, then we are ignoring this family. This is where hospitality becomes such an important part of our faith and our family in Christ. I know COVID's made that difficult and everything, but we have to be on the lookout for those who don't have another place to go because it's tough for them in a setting like this. The point, though, is that just like the Israelite pilgrims of old, we too face dangers and difficulties and obstacles to our worship today. And some of those are superficial, and we can get past them pretty easy, and some of them are a lot more serious, and they're a lot harder to get past. Some are somewhere in between. 
And yet regardless, they stand in the way of our relationship with God and they detour us away from his house and the worship that we had planned to come and offer him. And that's where the mountains came in. In his book on the Psalms of Ascent, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, pastor and author Eugene Peterson writes this. During the time that these psalms were written and sung, Palestine was overrun with popular pagan worship. Much of this religion was practiced on the hilltops, on the mountains. Shrines were set up, groves of trees were planted, sacred prostitutes, both male and female, were provided. Persons were lured to the shrines to engage in acts of worship that would enhance the fertility of the land, would make you feel good, and would protect you from evil. There were nostrums, protections, spells, and enchantments against all the perils of the road. Do you fear the sun's heat? Go to the sun priest and pay for protection against the sun god. Are you fearful of the malign influence of moonlight? Go to the moon priestess and buy an amulet. Are you haunted by the demons that can use any pebble under your foot to trip you? Go to the shrine and learn from the magic formula to ward off the mischief. Whence shall my help come? From Baal? From Asherah? From the sun priest? From the moon priestess? In other words, the Israelites had options. They had options for where they could go with their troubles, for where they could have their difficulties resolved, for whom they might turn to when those obstacles arose. And unfortunately, it wasn't always the Lord. And it isn't always for us either, is it? We've got mountains that we can turn to as well. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? From my business, from my bank account, from food, from my bed, from sex, from my spouse, from my girlfriend, from my boyfriend, from my endless hours of Netflix, from my preferred party or candidate or platform, from my social media, from all the likes I get, from my physique, from video games, from my health, from my reputation, from my sense of humor, from my therapist, from my doctor, from my hobbies, from my friends, from my church, from my favorite podcast, even from my pastor. And let's be clear, none of those things are inherently bad or evil. God's creation isn't inherently bad or evil. The gifts he gives us aren't inherently bad or evil. It's not necessarily wrong to get help from places like that. They're not things that we should automatically avoid. Our idols rarely are. The problem is when they take the place of God in our lives. When we elevate them to such a status that we feel we can no longer live without them. When if they're taken away, suddenly our whole world comes crashing down. That's when you know. That's when you know that the things you've relied on aren't just things you're relying on anymore, but have actually become the objects of your worship. They're the mountains you look to, the things you feel make you safe and secure. Only they can. Worship something other than God long enough, anything, doesn't matter what it is, and eventually it will let you down. It might take a while, You might have a pretty good long run with it. You might not notice its weaknesses or the cracks in its foundation, but eventually you will, and what will happen is that it will fall apart. And that's because nothing in this life, nothing in this world is big enough, strong enough, and powerful enough 
to truly guide, shepherd, and administer our lives, except God. He alone is the source of providence and provision for us. He alone is the one who can care for and comfort us. He is the, alone is the one who can ultimately provide for our needs. And often he uses the sorts of things that we just listed, right? He uses our doctors to heal our diseases. He uses our family to show us his love and forgiveness. He uses our therapists to help us manage our anxiety and stress. He even uses Netflix and other forms of entertainment to help us unwind. I'm going to engage in that later on when I watch the Bears play the Lions. Probably won't do much to manage my stress or anxiety, but I'm going to watch it nonetheless. Right? But the point is we must never mistake the means that God uses in our lives for the maker himself. We must never confuse the comforts God has given us with the comfort that he alone can offer. We must never think we can get all that we need just from the gifts of God while ignoring God himself. As the psalmist says so well here in the psalm, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. He is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. He will watch over your coming and your going, both now and forevermore. And that brings us to the gospel. You see, this same God whom we worship, this same God who provides for us in big ways and small, the same God who sustains us each and every day of our lives, something that we will celebrate in a moment together at this table, that same God has also provided for us in a way that no one and nothing else could. He gave us his son, Jesus Christ, for all the times in our lives when our feet have slipped, all the times when we've sought our safety and security somewhere else, and all the times when we've detoured into worshiping something or someone other than him. He's forgiven us for it all. Because of Christ and his work on the cross, he has called us back to himself as his people into relationship with him. And as a result of his grace and mercy toward us, he continues to watch over us still, neither slumbering nor sleeping, holding us fast as our God and Father, both now and forevermore. Thanks be to him. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, you watch over us in every aspect of our lives. We can try to turn so many other places to so many other people to so many other things and yet we alone find our rest and security in you. And thank you for the fact that despite how we have often looked elsewhere, you remain faithful to us. You have made that faithfulness most apparent in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for him as our Lord and Savior. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.